Good afternoon. My name is Michael Suarez. I'm the director of Rare Book School, and it's my privilege to welcome you uh, to this lecture in our summer series. This evening's lecture is funded by the school's National Endowment for the Humanities Global Book Histories Initiative Grant, a program that we've been running in concert with the still extant NEH since 2017. Thomas S. Mullaney is professor of Chinese history at Stanford University, and we are honored to have him among us this evening. A distinguished academic of a truly global reputation, he has been a Guggenheim Fellow and curator of the international exhibition Radical Machines, Chinese in the Information Age. Professor Mullaney is the author of Coming to Terms with the Nation, Ethnic Classification in Modern China, 2010, and this astonishing book. If you haven't read this, you must read this book. The Chinese Typewriter, A History from MIT Press in 2017. It's full of surprises. The New Yorker called it I loved it. Surprisingly readable, which I thought was like, <laughs> what? What does that mean? No, truly, the New Yorker said, a surprisingly engaging read. Mulaney balances the light with the heavy, dotting a provocative counter-history of language and technology with absorbing asides. It's, it's really a marvelous book. Uh, Professor Mulaney is also the principal editor of both critical Han studies, the history, representation, and identity of China's majority, and the Chinese deathscape, grave reform in modern China, recently from Stanford University Press in 2019. His writings have appeared in the Journal of Asian Studies in Technology and Culture, Aeon, Foreign Affairs, and Foreign Policy, and his work has been featured in the LA Times, the Atlantic, the BBC, and in invited lectures at Google and Microsoft. Please join me in welcoming Professor Mullaney. Hello, everyone. Um, I want to thank, uh, I want to actually thank very personally Jeremy uh, in particular, but the Rare Book School and everyone associated with it. This, is, uh, this visit is almost two years in the making. Last year I had the honor of being invited, but I had the even greater honor of having a small, my first, our first child, and, um, and then, so, but they kept in touch and we made it work, and for that I'm very grateful to be here. I've always wanted to be a student at uh, Rare Book School, and this is the next best possible thing for me. Um, so uh, you can see the title of the talk today, and I'm going to be walking through um, a, a new project that I have been working on that is at once uh, completely different than anything I've thought about before, but also completely obviously connected to the things that I've been working on. And I'm trying to make sense of that in my mind. Um, and I'm going to ask for your help, I guess, over the course of this uh, evening to think through these things. So where I come from, um, as was just mentioned, I just finished this work, uh, The Chinese Typewriter History, which is in essence uh, a history of 
uh, let's say, mid-19th century to uh, the advent of the Cold War and the history of Chinese information technologies. And the central conceit of this book is that uh, all of these really fundamentally game-changing communication technologies, like telegraphy, for example, but all the way up through typewriting, computing, um, are fundamentally alphabetic by nature. They were designed with alphabets and the Latin alphabet in mind. And wouldn't it be interesting to ask, what about a quarter of humanity that has a non-alphabetic writing system? What happened um, in, in this part of the story? And I'm now working on finishing up the second, uh, it's basically the sequel of it, uh, which is very creatively called The Chinese Computer, because I don't, I'm not very creative with titles. And, um, and these are just uh, some snippets from my archives on that side, which shows a, a low-resolution bitmap font from 1981, the sketch-up for it in the background. And then I'm using Legos to try to understand the, des the design decisions that were made um, at that time. And then I'm moving into, I'm also working on a, a book on the history of linotype, uh, but specifically the linotype's oriental office and business uh, and the creation of fonts for Arabic, Hebrew, katakana, um, and the Brooklyn office that was really responsible for these, for these drafting programs. And in particular, I follow the young draftswomen that really drew all of these or finalized all of these typefaces that would end up in scripts in newspapers around the world, although they never spoke or read a single letter um, of the languages that they were tasked with writing. So, so the idea that um, I would get to something on um, you know Chinese printing and a new form of book Gesundheit uh, uh, is is probably not um, not unusual. Over time, however, there's a question that has been really. Um, bothering me. So over the last, I've been working on these two books for the last 15 years, and, um, and it's, there's something that's very obvious when you study this subject matter, which is that forms of printing, regardless of the fact that movable type is invented in what we now think of as East, in East Asia, there's no question that grid-based printing technologies, linotype, um, movable type, uh, but also things requiring discretization, so pixels, pixel-based graphics, and so forth. There's no question that they, they, they place a certain kind of advantage in favor of certain orthographies and place other orthographies at disadvantages. Um, and this is not just Chinese and Chinese and character-based writing. It's also connected writing like Arabic. It's also uh, Korean forms of writing that assemble in different ways. And, and I just decided to really ask myself this question is, you know, how is it possible that digitization or binarization or discretization should have any effect, any inequality that, you know, baked into it at all? Because uh, it obviously does, and everyone that's in printing knows this, and everyone that's ever dealt with 20th century print history knows this. But why? Uh, why, when you reduce things to ones and zeros, is the playing field uneven? And, uh, you know, I spent a long time trying to think about these kinds of issues. And a term that comes up in my first book, The, uh, the Chinese Typewriter, which I do a poor job of defining, but it's actually a very important word for me, um, so I thought I would talk a little bit about it, is this, is this idea of techno-linguistics. And the basic, the, the basic idea of this word for me, um, the techno here is obviously technology, but it's also techne. Uh, linguistics here uh, is, I mean, 
almost grapholinguistics would be more important because I'm not talking about Saussure, I'm not talking about spoken language, I'm talking about writing systems. So I'm trying to understand writing where the principal concern is not the printed letter or word on the page, but all of the stuff that proceeds and goes into that graph getting on the page in the first place. And so, temporarily, I like to think like this. So, um, you know, if you think of the act of printing, the letter A on the printed page, to me, I'm, I'm going to be facetious, is boring to me. What's interesting to me is all the work that had to go into that thing getting on the page. That's why I follow these young men and young women as they use French curves and drafting tables to carve out these letters at full scale. And then later on, it's going to end up in a newspaper in Tel Aviv or in Beirut or in Yokohama. But I want to see all the labor that goes into that. And the reason I want to look at those kinds of that, that part of um, writing, I guess, and printing is because to me that's where the action is. That's where the real blood and politics of 19th and 20th century stuff was going on. Um, so a lot of people, for anyone here who knows Chinese, um, when they hear about you know, things going on politically with the Chinese language, many people say, you mean something like simplification, right? So this was the effort by the communists to take Chinese characters and write them differently. And you say, is that, is that what you mean? And I say, well, no, actually, that's not what I mean. Because whether a Chinese character is written one way or written another, it is equally difficult to send over a telegraph wire using Morse code. Morse code doesn't get easier as a problem, regardless of the form of the character. Uh, so there's all this behind-the-scenes stuff that engineers and linguists and entrepreneurs and everyday users were like playing with for 150 years. Um, and the video that I tried, it's, it's, a, it's a somewhat vague idea. It's not that vague, I guess, but the, here's the simplest way to put it. This is a, uh, a Japanese uh, calligraphy automaton from the 19th, end of the 19th century. And um, in essence, I want to make a contrast between two ways of viewing the video that you're about to see. So they, this is, they're pulling it out of the museum and they're going to run it. Uh, and while everybody is looking at the page that will eventually bear a kanji graph, a Chinese character graph, what I'm concerned with is what appears at the end of the video, which will be revealed shortly. You don't need to worry about what's being said. To me, this is boring. The really interesting part comes Hold on, wait for it. At least the music accompanies. There we go. That, oh gosh. Anyway, you, you see the camshafts there? That is techno-linguistics. Because these camshafts, at the exact curvature, the math that goes into their construction, the sequencing of those camshafts on a spool, 
the speed of rotation, the follower that has to move, all of that is, you could think of it, is the work, is all of the meaninglessness that has to go into the production of what we consider to be a meaningful act of writing, which is a character on the page. If I were to just hand you these camshafts, you could not read them. Um, uh, and if I disassembled them and I took them out of arrangement, they would suddenly produce no semiotic value, no meaning whatsoever. But when you take these things and you carefully carve them, spot check them, proof them, try them again, and then you arrange them in the right order, you place them in this exact material configuration, this exact precise configuration, it then produces this graph on the page that then becomes the thing of poetry and letters home from the war and diaries and calligraphy and et cetera, et cetera, and that becomes the realm of writing. So technolinguistics is all of the work of you know, non-heuristic work that goes into that production. So that's what I spend, if anyone's read the typewriter, you know that I basically spend the entire part of the book watching people fight, I mean really aggressively fight about how are we going to get a character across wire? How are we going to fit 70,000 characters onto a tabletop device? How are we going to do that? None of this stuff had to do with um, the sort of heuristic value of language that we think of, but all of it was in service of that goal because the ultimate desire was to be able to write letters or send messages or et cetera, et cetera, command armies. But basically, you know, you can only fight your environment so much. And so what people kept asking me for those 15 years was like, okay, Tom, got it. But how fast was it? What was its impact? They want, they were like this fierce Eisensteinians. They want this, they, any technology that matters influences people, affects people, produces lots of copies, um, ends up places, changes minds, causes democracy, et cetera, et cetera. I bracketed that for a long time because I think actually it's a very unproductive way to think at the advent of a, of a project. Because at the end of the day, if something did have this explosive impact, you'll figure it out. You know, you're not going to miss that. But if it didn't have that, you might, you'll make the mistake of just throwing the project away uh, prematurely, thinking, well, there's nothing there if it didn't have you know, this massive impact. Um, and also, even if you pursue it, will overlook subtleties that you would miss if you just adopted a kind of impact-focused history of print. And so I went looking for type documents that were produced with a Chinese typewriter. And I, found, and I found some. In fact, I had been looking at them the entire time. It turns out that half of the documents in the archives that I was using for my first book on the ethnic classification project, not about print, were produced using Chinese typewriters. I just didn't know it. But as I started to become sensitized to this technology, I started to be able to read and just know when do you see a Chinese TypeScript document. So I created this identification guide. Um, how, to, how to know that this was not printed with any other print technology. And there are a variety of ways that you, you know. Um, so the horizontal baseline is somewhat wobbly. It's not um, really crisp. Uh, there is uh, character spacings relatively loose. And, and um, uh, then you have punctuation marks appear midline. Uh, you have some characters are fainter on one side versus the other, so these are imperfect registrations. Uh, and then not shown here, which is a dead giveaway, is that every now and then in the midst of all of these printed characters, you'll see one or two or three that are handwritten. 
But these are not, these are not one-off documents. These are mass-produced documents. But there's one, and that's a dead giveaway that this uh, Chinese typewriter. And then you see things like this. This is also produced with a Chinese typewriter. Very different kind of document. Um, so sort of, and then you see documents like this, which is a musical score from the Maoist period. And this is produced in part using a Chinese typewriter. And so I started to collect these, these texts. You cannot walk into a, an archive in China or a library in China and say, show me everything that you have that was made with a typewriter. That is not part of the metadata. So it's a really exhausting process. Uh, but so far, I've amassed maybe about somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 of these kinds of texts. Uh, and then at some point, I said, stop, because I'm, you know, someone's going to find me in my office uh, one day underneath it all. Um, and so, you know, how do so something is as a researcher, my belief and as a, as a teacher is that um, there is something in me that knows what I'm getting, trying to get at with this, like why I'm so concerned with this, and that the job of research is to, is to get the rest of me, the sort of executive part of my being, to align with whatever that instinctual part is telling me. I, I do not yet know, this is the part that's honest, I do not yet know why I am so concerned with this. I do not yet know why I have decided to amass 2,000 of these texts. So some of the ideas is, well, maybe I can just make a, a kind of case along the forgotten Chinese book angle. I put forgotten in quotations because, of course, this book is these kinds of texts, and some of them are very, quite long. I mean, these are, you know, these are 200, 200 300, 500 page books sometimes. These are not single one page documents, and I'd be happy to show these to you in person. You'll see many of them. Um, and they show up in bibliographies. They're used by archivists, especially those who um, you know, kind of do garbology, like Michael Schoenalls and other people that find uh, secondhand bookstore texts. They show up in bibliographies all over the place called typed and mimeographed books. But as a genre of book, there are exceedingly few people that have thought of it as a kind of book. They are not, they are unregistered books. They are not printed by any publishing houses. Uh, and so they, they exist in abundance, but they also exist in a kind of state of opacity. Is that what I'm concerned with? Yeah, but that's, that's kind of what I put in my grant proposal or to get a teaching gig at the Rare Book School, but it's not actually what is bothering me. So instead, um, I think it has to do something with the question that I asked before about grids and binarization and discretization. I have spent my entire career thus far of being obsessed with grids um, and nested hierarchies and geometry, basically. Um, so my first book was really a study of taxonomy, and so branching things and really clean, clean lines. And I'm fascinated by historical actors that attempt to uh, discover or, or, or discover clean rationality or attempt to enforce it and then often fail. Um, I myself live in total chaos. If you ever stepped in my office, you would see a picture of my mind. But I'm, I've often been obsessed. Then I move into studying the typewriter or digital fonts or whatever it might be. And it's just this story of the grid. And I, I have a kind of sense for grid makers. And I have a sense for the absurdity of the, the grid dream. But I have never gravitated, for example, towards xylography or lithography or calligraphy or the study of manuscripts. There's something, and I, when I talk to my colleague Elaine Traharn, she's like, I could care less about print. You know? and so like, we're like, okay, we just, you know, let's talk. Um, 
But something in me is changing, and I knew it. It's been changing. It's been going on under undercover, and then it sort of erupted this past uh, few months ago when I finally had a chance to go to Barcelona to go to the Sagrada Familia, um, and I went inside and I just wept, like within a th- ten seconds of going in. I don't know why I was doing it. it. I didn't know such a thing could exist. That I think that's why I did not know that such a thing could exist. And if anyone's been there, I think maybe you'll understand what I'm saying. Even though it's such an immense tourist destination, it still affects. It's like the Grand Canyon in that sense, or I don't know, Angkor Wat or something. It's like despite the abundance of people there, it affects. Um, and that it, it is a very, it, as someone apparently described it, a, a very famous poet, it's as if someone took a Gothic, Gothic cathedral, put it on the bottom of the ocean, and left it there for 300 years. Um, but there is something that is now coming up in me which is growing concerned with these non-gridded forms, and yet I don't exactly know what my question is, and I'm wondering what is exactly xylography, mimeography, lithography, xerography, hectography, as compared to these gridded systems that I know very well. And coming back to the question of non-Latin fonts and Chinese and so forth, anyone in here that works anywhere outside of, well, Latin script, Cyrillic script, Greek script, Hebrew script, you'll know that uh, lithography is a, is a go-to print technology for uh, many South Asian scripts, uh, that xylography continues to be a very important print technology in East Asia, uh, well into the era of, of industrial scale movable type. And so there's this idea that, well, these, so these writing systems are somehow, fa- these, these non-gridded systems are somehow favorable or open to these things that are excluded by gridded systems, which then makes the original question even more confusing. Why should one form exclude one way and another not exclude Latin or Cyrillic, etc., but be advantageous? There's, what is it about these, and how do I think about them? How do I think about them? There are forms and terminologies that sometimes people use, and all of them are really, um, not all of them, all of them ones I have heard, uh, the sort of shooting from the hip answers, are really unsatisfying. The idea that they're freer. Lithography is no more free. No, it's not free or unbounded. Xylography is not unbounded. There is still a bound space. Um, it is, but its boundedness operates in a, in a completely different way. And then people go the opposite direction, saying, well, everything is going back to lithography because now with our iPads and these, and these retina screens, when you, know, you draw your finger across, and that's just like carving across a wood, wood block or something. And it's like absolutely not true because no matter how high the resolution, that is still a discretized system in which everything is resolving down to a numeric substrate and then is being rendered in a, you know, in a highly dense but still gridded system that is meant to have an effect of a lithographic or a xylographic or a photographic. So what are the relationships between these two things? Is this circle and square? Is this you know, rational, irrational? I, uh, that's what I am worrying about. That's what I want to talk about today. So I, I'm interested in this and I don't know exactly why. Um, and I'm going to give, I, I'm organizing a conference uh, this spring called Before and Beyond Typography, and we're going to deal with a number of these, um, these questions, and hopefully, and I'll, it, basically I, I've organized this conference because I want to be a student, um, because I do not understand these print technologies. I have no feeling for them, and I need, and I need it now. So I want to talk about um, temporality and multimodality. Uh, temporality is something uh, that 
I've already talked about the way I'm going to talk about these books, which you're about to see, is in this vein. Um, and, um, and then multimodality is a little bit harder because it's, a new, it's also new territory for me. In my book on the Chinese typewriter, I mainly deal with Chinese typewriters, and voila, here is, here is one of them. Um, it's a typewriter with no keyboard. Uh, but, and I also deal with telegraphy, with character retrieval systems, dictionary lookup systems, and so forth. Lots of different modes and technologies, but I have to say, all of them are pretty hermetically sealed from each other. Like, I can pretty much deal with one thing at a time. Um, but now uh, that I'm moving into the age of computing, suddenly multimodality is becoming inescapable. There's, I mean, if anyone here can actually tell me what they think the company Adobe actually does, I'd be fascinated, because you probably don't know. Um, or what exactly does, uh, what exactly is XML, or what exactly is, uh, you know, what are these, these systems and interoperations that we think of? Uh, suddenly you get this really entangled, incredibly multimodal system that you cannot piece out and have a chapter on this and a chapter on this or a section on this. So suddenly we're moving from stuff like this, in the case of these books, to this form of production. Chinese typewriters are still in the mix, but so are these hard-edge implements, uh, these things called tongxue uh, pan, and of course straight edges, stencils, and more and more and more, and we're going to talk about some of these things. Uh, so I need to think through what it means to think of, think of print technologies explicitly multimodal from the beginning, and, and, and I honestly don't know how to do that. So this talk is exploratory, not argumentative. I'm sorry, but I'm not really sorry. So let's just look at one page of one 300-page book of the forms that I'm talking about. Um, and you can take this page, and if you were to temporalize it, in that, in that sort of, uh, uh, like the, photo the photograph of the dancer, you would have to look at a few different elements of the page um, in order to do that. So the starting point for this production, undoubtedly in this case, is the typewriter itself. So at the beginning of this production, the text obviously did not look like this, it looked something like this. Uh, and you'll notice that where the gaps are. Okay, so this is all typewritten Chinese typewritten text. Uh, this is the stuff that I now can you know spot at a at a at great distance. It is produced with a machine exactly like this. Um, if anyone's curious how you type on a Chinese typewriter, what you do is you use. Let me go back to that one. You use your left hand to hold this green knob right here, and then you can move your left hand left and right, and then the entire tray will move left and right, okay? This is a grid, this is a, the Double Pigeon brand, which was the kind of the brand of the Maoist period of Chinese typewriters. Um, it is a 35 by 70 grid, so 2,450 total possible characters, the most commonly used. And people way back into the 19th century did basically kind of proto-DH text analysis and figured out through painstaking character by character by character copies of corpuses of millions of texts, uh, millions of characters of text, that 2,500 characters buys you about 90% of all characters you'll need. So it doesn't get you all the way, which is one thing we're going to see. Um, and then with your right hand, you hold this, this knob right here, and you can move it both in the X and Y direction, and the whole type, the whole platen and the type printing mechanism moves with you. So on a Western typewriter, the platen is fixed. On a Chinese typewriter, the platen moves. Okay? 
And when you get this chamber over top of the character you want, you depress that lever. A little metal finger pokes the metal slug, which is loose. So if you were to take this tray bed out and dump it out, you would pie the type. Um, it finger pushes up the metal slug, which has a nick, just like an immovable type. It gets locked inside this chamber. That's an ink, uh, an ink wheel, which in this case is not ink. But it rubs against the ink and then smacks, there's no paper on this obviously, smacks the platen, and then the type arm falls back down and, the, and the, the weight of the momentum of it doing that spits the metal slug back out to the space that was left in the XY grid from whence it came. So there's no ka 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 ding that's not the sound of Chinese typewriting, it's that's the cadence and also the kind of the somatic feel of Chinese typewriting. Now there are a lot of things already though, and this is how you can start to think about them. Already though, this is an incredible, some people call this a tabletop printing device. They, you know, that some that refuse, or not refuse, but say in addition to being a typewriter, it's also this kind of mobile, movable type printing press. Um, and you begin to see cover and book design using these kinds of decorative areas. And there were many decorative slugs that you could add to and custom buy and add to your device for the purposes of borders and edges and so forth. And here's just a selection of them um, you know, from one, one print company. You could do things that would be very, very difficult to do uh, or maybe slightly difficult to do uh, with, um, you know, if you were setting movable type in, uh, and this is the question of footnoting. So this is actually a slug on the Chinese typewriter. And then, of course, you can just create your own footnoting system on the, on the, on the, through it, um, and so forth and so on. Now, but this is only going to get you so far. So the second temporality of the production of this one page of this one book, and now keep in mind, this is not being printed on a piece of paper. It's being printed on a wax master. Uh, so that's a very important. Are these guys, uh, Kale and Sade. I really could maybe consider them just one phase. But now suddenly the, the, the wax master has been removed from the platen, and we are suddenly using uh, an edge tool. Not an edge pen, but an edge tool. And we're getting it prepared. We might be using a, a, this thing called a tung xue pan, or we just might be able to be using a hard surface. And we're going to add uh, these kinds of insertions of, in this case, Roman alphabet stuff. Now this is interesting because many Chinese typewriters did have the Roman <coughs> alphabet on them, but suppose apparently this one did not. Or maybe it only had the uppercase, in which case they needed a lowercase. In any event, they wanted to change modalities right at that moment. This kind of uh, print system is also incredibly good at sort of making bilingual texts when you do have the Latin alphabet in its entirety. But even when you do, you begin to see residual interesting kind of remnants of the Chinese typewriter there, which is my favorite thing, is the use of the Cyrillic in the place of a lowercase b. And this is a legacy of the Maoist era Chinese typewriters that had Cyrillic on it because of Sino-Soviet friendship. I mean, Chinese typewriters that I saw in London owned by a Chinese Christian, a Malaysian Chinese Christian woman in London who was not a communist, uh, I looked at her tray bed and she simply had not removed the, the Russian from it. It was still on the machine. So you see these remnants of Chinese typewriting printed. And then you can go back at the hard edge and notice that now we've moved from doing the Latin alphabet to adding characters. Because again, there are only 2,450 characters in this. And this one, gui, which means silicon, um, is apparently not on the machine. And so instead of fumbling around, we can simply remove it, go to a different modality, and add gui and gui where we need them. 
So we're getting there. Now, this alerts us to a kind of T minus one part of this temporality, which is the preparation of the tray bed itself. Because Chinese typewriters came with a common usage tray bed, so you kind of got it out of the box, and it would have a standard set at any given time of 2,450 characters that it thought would be most useful for you based upon a statistical analysis and also politics. Um, and this is a tray bed guide that shows you where stuff is. Uh, back in the day, I digitized all of these and made Excel docs of all of them. Is Gui there? No, it's not. But I will tell you that this, the text that we're talking about has lots of really uncommon characters, and they are there. They are printed versions of them. The only way that's possible is that someone took hours or days to methodically use tweezers to remove characters that they weren't going to use in this book and add characters that they were going to that were uncommon. So there is a preparatory process. Um, but apparently, the guy didn't do Gui, um, so just write that in by hand. It's no big deal. Now we're talking about the diagram. So suddenly, of course, we've left a space. The kind of preparation that goes into this book production is similar to the, the deeper history of the book that we think of, although it is reasonable to expect that we have one person doing this. It's not, un it's not unreasonable to assume that one person is doing this. So we're not going to hand it off to a, you know, for, to a rubricator or, or to an illuminator. This is just someone's like got their tools in front of them and are going to go and do this piece by piece. And so again, now we're moving into the area of edge pen and some sort of straight edge. And you can see this in other examples. This is from a different text. But here you see typewritten text. All of this is Chinese typewritten. And then a space is made. And then, of course, straight edges are run over the wax master, or maybe mimeograph, or maybe carbon paper, but probably a wax master in this. And then, of course, coming back to diagrams like this, you can only imagine the kind of preparation that goes into this. This is an interesting case because it's hard to know which one came first, whether or not the grid was prepared and then TypeScript, or if, and this is not, this is not impossible if the person had done their planning sufficiently well to produce the TypeScript and then went over it with the edged instrument to produce the grid. But either way, there have to be a lot of preparation that goes into thinking through how this is going to work, especially in this neighborhood here, um, and making sure that there's sufficient co column space. So, uh, and then we have you know, things of this complexity, et cetera, et cetera. It's also incredibly good. You don't have to do it with a table or just a diagram. You can also think of flowcharts and kind of, you know, if you want to indicate. And this is an interesting one because it has, again, an edge tool that's used to insert a Latin alphabet and then clearly an edge instrument that's used to um, show pathways of, of a sequence. Uh, table or uh, uh, charts in the same sense. What's very interesting here is that you have typewritten text surrounding it but then, you, obviously, this is being made with an edged, uh, edged instrument and straight, uh, straight edges, and so are these. But notice that these new numbers are not typewritten. They're, they are done by hand. So the kind of modality for and the reason that it has that almost, almost looks like a dot matrix printer printout, and the reason is, is that the hard surface of the tongue shui pan, this uh, copying pad, is, uh, has hairline, a hairline grid so that it will kind of catch. Some of these can get really, really complex and interesting. So this is all typewritten text. And then you have, obviously, a space left for the insertion of this diagram. This comes from a, a, a treatise on acupuncture. Uh, and here you have clearly, so all of this is done with an instrument, but this down here is done with a Chinese typewriter.
So uh, was this done before this was done and just the person knew that that's roughly how big they wanted their figure to be? Or was this done and they say, well, that's all I need and I'll, go, I'll put it back into the typewriter and produce my figure? Because that says, you know, basically figure one or, well, tool. Um, and this is an incredible one, like one single page of, again, a table where either the edge pen made the grid and then the typewritten text or, the, or vice versa, and then on the bottom you have this figure. But when you look at this particular figure, the labels are typewritten. These were produced with a Chinese typewriter, uh, but this one here and this one here was not. So thinking of you know, how to think of this as a print historian, a book historian, a technolinguist, someone concerned with this, blows my mind, I'll tell you, because there's no way to kind of segregate out the technologies, the processes, it's, 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 it's a hard, now, this can be pushed, this edged instrument can be pushed to the direction of a kind of singular instrument as well. It doesn't have to be multimodal. This entire uh, inset um, you know, table was done with an edged instrument, no Chinese typewriter at all. And then you get things where it becomes multimodal again in a different way. This is all done by hand. Uh, and the reason it's so beautifully gridded is because there was this special kind of translucent grid paper as a guide that you could use, so there's even more stuff involved. Um, and then stencils. So this is undoubtedly with a paper stencil that is placed over the master and then with, with an edged instrument simply filled in. And there are many different kinds of these uh, stencils in existence, such as the one like this one here for the sun, and, uh, but in the case of the, the, the calligraphic text, you know, this is someone that is actually you know, doing this with an edge instrument. And then it can go all the way in one direction. It can get very freeform and very, very ungridded. And this is a, this is a Dison uh, Jiang Qing um, uh, from the Gang of uh, Jiang Qing and the Gang of Four. And finally, it can be multimodal in the same, we're talking about singular books in which based upon what's needed by the producer of this book, can just simply say, I'm going to just add a page based on the modality that I need for this particular uh, case. So this is, these are facing pages. This page, page 20, is entirely written, entirely produced with a Chinese typewriter. Page 19, which is a facing page, um, because of these equations ostensibly, which you know, would be very difficult to produce with a Chinese typewriter, if not impossible, the person clearly opted I'm just going to go edge pen with this. I'm going to go edge instrument the whole deal. There is a kind of flexibility that we see in this kind of book production, which is really fascinating. And it looks like, it looks like this. There's no urge to standardize this, because this shows up all the time. This happens in all over these kinds of books. Uh, and there's clearly either an impossibility or no desire to arrive at a finished, crisp product, even though we're talking about 300-page books that are circulated in great number. Again, this is not a brochure. Um, necessarily. And then we get to the interesting part of step seven, which is proofreading. Now you go through and proofread and you find omissions and errors and stuff, and so with an Ed's instrument, simply add them and add the carrots to show where they would go. And this, these are left in the final product. So you find this kind of relationship with erroneous text all throughout. And add another one down here, add the carrots. So there's, on this one page, there are three errors of omission. Uh, and then we go through. So um, 
And again, you have in the single in a singular page, you, a singular work, you might have multiple um, multiple things going on. Uh, so, so and then I won't go through all of them. But here's more diagrams you can do with this modality. All of these, I think, for anyone that is thinking through uh, a TypeScript book, for example, or a book set in um, in hard metal or by Linotype, for that matter. These would, every, all of the examples I gave you would be phenomenally complex, phenomenally costly, and yet in this multimodal system, they are actually quite uh, readily available. These are things that a single person could do in a span of um, any one page in a single work session. And uh, now any one of these books, if you calculate that typewriting roughly is about 20 to 30 characters per minute in many of these establishments, uh, and so with a book of 100,000, 200,000 characters, we're talking about four to eight days of work, uh, depending upon your speed. And that's to produce the wax master that then is going to produce the, the, the number of books. Now, that might sound slow, except these books are not being printed in the tens, tens of thousands and, and you know, 50,000 that would justify setting in, 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 in metal type. These are books that are being produced likely in the range of 200, 100, 500 um, and so for that goal, four, four days of work is like a sweet spot. It's, it's actually quite efficient, quite good. So coming back, and I'll, 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 I'll sort of uh, conclude here before the Q&A. I mean, in, in essence, coming back to the question, why are grids, binarization, discretizations advantageous to and not to? And then on the flip side, when we think of those kinds of print technologies that are often heralded as being better for or more suited to the very orthographies that are excluded by the gridded systems, thinking through, well, what phenomenologically, what essentially is the difference between them? Um, and that is something that I said you know, from the outset that I, I'm not going to put as, as an argument here today. But in essence, what I'm trying to say is that the question is the argument that I have, I have yet to hear a kind of explanation of how to think of this class of print, of print technologies as compared to gridded systems in a way that gets to what the essential differences, similarities, and so forth are. There are ways to talk about modes of print, subtractive, additive. I mean, we can get into the technical vocabulary of how any one is produced, but what is it that makes these similar to each other and contrast them with these others? And, and again, how we see that contrast reverberate across the, inequal, the unequal playing field of print technology when it comes to global scripts. So that's my question, and now I'm ready for the Q&A. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, sir. You know, I noticed, though you did mention it, that you didn't include photography. Uh, yep, yeah. yeah. Because, of course, photography we grid as soon as we screen it. Mm. Uh, so photography, so the, the, I mean, I do in my, the, the, to my knowledge, the first application of photographic reproduction of text and please someone correct me if I'm wrong, is actually the, the need to make, uh, create a copy of the treaty that concludes the first opium war to bring it back to uh, Great Britain. Um, and 
how to do it in a perfect copy. And that's the application of, I guess, basically kind of proto-calotype technology to that. So one factor in this is I'm trying to, and I don't know if it's justifiable, but I'm trying to think of text reproduction. And so, um, so photography, obviously, once you get to phototype setting, that's a very different question. But whether or not in my mind to include photography per se in this question of, but I, I think it could be added and asked. I just don't know how to. Then it becomes even more confusing to me, I, I suppose. But yeah, I think it should be in there, but I try to limit it to its application to the reproduction of text. Yes. I think I saw, yes. Yeah. Sure. Sure. So these are so every form of everything that you've seen in terms of exemplars here are all um, operating outside of any registration system. They are all unsanctioned by the state. Uh, they are not operating within formal, you know, uh, and surveilled printing areas. And what's interesting is that uh, one might expect that that be a story of kind of samizad and you know, an, you know, underground anti-state. I mean, these are not the vast majority of what I have seen. Actually, all of it so far is not anti-state at all and not anti-party at all. I mean, there someone dedicated eight year, eight days of their life to the reproduction of speeches by Mao, but it's it was still an unsanctioned, unregistered book. So on the one hand. A lot of what I'm seeing is doesn't fit into the model that we think of of underground, unsanctioned publishing in sort of Western Europe or Soviet Union or, or the United States. Um, but at the same time, the, there is state anxiety. So there's a manual that is circulated um, uh, by the by state officials, basically that tell that teach a that teach police and public security people how to identify. Uh, features of any text produced using that that tongue pad, and like uh, you know, if it tries to show you the architecture of it and the gridded nature of it. So if if the if the hash mark pattern of the characters is a certain thing, that that's a signature, and if you see that signature elsewhere, you can reasonably assume that it's produced using the same one, and therefore you got the guy. Uh, and so there is an anxiety about this unsanctioned nature of, of print, and yet, interestingly, maybe it's a question of what survives. The stuff I have seen has not been eagerly anti-state and so forth. Um, the DIY zines part of this is that, uh, and, and you know, there are, I mean, a lot of what I have gravitated towards in my collecting are book-length, you know, hundred-page and up kind of works. But there are broadsides, there are pamphlets, there are, there are um, unsanctioned uh, periodicals that actually have multiple issues over the course of the Cultural Revolution. I have many of those. Many of those are, are produced exclusively with an edged instrument and, um, and carbon paper or with a wax master. So that's, that's what I'm trying to work through um, in... in, in I, that's the thing that I, in a certain sense, I put that in order to make it legible, but at the same time, it's actually a thing that I'm trying to bracket in my mind for as long as possible, because otherwise, uh, you know, it'll be the irresistible magnetic force of trying to talk about, okay, let's get down to the brass tacks of the politics of these things. I mean, Xu Bing, the famous artist Xu Bing, has a famous uh, mimeograph book that he produced, and, and now it's like on his website and probably in a museum, but at the time, it was no 
it was no big deal. It was, uh, it's a very beautifully done work. So. I'll take more than one question at a time just so I can govern my excitement. Yes? Well, I, I hope I didn't misstate it. I reworded it to say it is not impossible to think it was done by the same person, I believe is what I said, and that is true. There is no reason to believe that the kind of specialization you see in illumination and in the, 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 the scribal work and in rubrication and in et cetera, et cetera, could possibly have been done by a single person. When we're talking about the ability, I mean, we both have the ability to draw rec you know, rectilinear lines. I would assume that we both have it. We can decide 10 marks. So we would both have the skill set to do the table, for example, in that, or to draw it. Now, is it possible that that was handed off to someone else? Absolutely. But the key here is that uh, thinking of the, all of the tools that would be needed, this tabletop with um, a set of tools, besides the typewriter, the typewriter is the costly part of this, but if you count the typewriter in, we are talking about a, a tongue shape patent that would have maybe cost the equivalent of 10 bucks, 20 bucks, an edge instrument that could have been you know, the edge of a book, um, and some sort, it could have been a butter knife for the, for the edge, meaning that, and of course, the sophistication of the things as works of diagrams and so forth are not, I mean, I could, I could produce that leg. Um, I, could, you know, I could produce that graph. And I could also produce that TypeScript document. So it, be, the, the key of it here is it's conceivable that the space is left and actually done by the same person. Not that it was done or that I'm confident it's done by the same person, but that it could have been done by the same person. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> so I have a question about multimodality. Mm -hmm. uh, in one sense, this is very exciting because it's using modern technologies. Uh, but at the same time, pre-modern, even Western books are highly multimodal. Yep. So yep. early Italian books often have letterpress, then manuscript embellishment, and then they also have Italian plate printing, all worked into the same sorts of texts. Mm -hmm. and, and so I was wondering, uh, in your view, is there something that's fundamentally differentiates this context you know, other than the China sure. geographic technology typewriters. But is there something that you think is really a, a fundamental break in conceiving of multimodality? Well, I mean, I actually think these questions are related because there's something about this that strikes me, and I, again, resist this urge, but I can't deny that it's there, as something like a proto-desktop publishing, meaning that that it's like I can sit down in a singular set and I might not do a good job, but I could pull together using InDesign or Illustrator or before that, back in the day, I was looking at my childhood archives a few days ago and you know, putting in clip art and, and, and put together something that is technically, that, is, that is, has the effect or is multimodal. It is, it is, it's visual, it's diagrammatic, it's tabular, it's textual, it's photographic. Um, and that being within arm's reach of a single operator. And part of the reason that it's within the reach of a single operator is, again, this, and this connects to the unsanctioned part of it, this is not for an esteemed print house. An esteemed print house, these things would be divided, the labor force of this would undoubtedly be divided into specialization um, so that the person that's going to make the map 
is going to be a cartographer that's going that knows how to do this. These are these are I don't know what the proper word would be. There's there's an informality to them. There's a kind of can't make as can do. I mean the fact that the errors and insertions are left in these texts by like on purpose. Um, and they're and they're, they're they're there's a sort of they're okay with that clearly because it's part of the genre means that suddenly it's possible for a single person to be be playing these different roles um, and that's that I think is the reason that's interesting to me is that suddenly it becomes really difficult to impossible to talk about the production of this through the lens of a single technology. I mean, I, I, am not, I am not a medievalist, but I have heard medievalists talk about the sort of supply chain of the production of a book and talk about the different pathways that are going, you know, that, that it's moving through and that it is possible to talk about one phase of that moment and to, and to go deep into that. And then you say, if you want to talk about the next phase of it, we can go deep into that. And if you want to go into the next phase, then we can go deep into that. And we will move through, it will be multimodal, but that multimodality will almost undoubtedly be moving through kind of phases of, 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 of you know, d different hands. I, I, I would be extremely surprised, I would say. I, I'm open to it, but I would be extremely surprised if these books are being distributed in these, in these forms, um, um, you know, so that there is the diagram person and the table person and the map person and the error person I don't think that's what's going on here. But, yeah. Uh, yes, two questions. Yes, I'll take yours. Uh, have you spoken to anyone who has made uh, these objects? Sure, thank you. Uh, yes. Yeah, I guess what I love about that is like your uh, freezing the wax form, then uh, you come across these. Can you uh, talk about what you mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, the the way that I'm trying to get my way into this, and this is actually similar to what happened with typewriter, is uh, there's an incredibly active septuagenarian and octogenarian blogging scene in China, and especially like a lot for photography, but also memoir and stuff of this nature, and and um, and there is a somewhat sort of a vibrant you know, reflecting back on dead media kind of thing and showing images. And some of the images um, from, well, a different talk that I've given are from there showing a person doing this. And then I typically start to comment on their blogs by saying, like, hi, my name is, and do you have a chance to talk? And that yielded a number of very, very interesting conversations for typewriter. I want to make sure that I, the, the reason that they were really productive in typewriter is that you know, I had learned the technical vocabulary of how I don't, you know, I never was a Chinese typist, but I became conversant enough to know this is called a zipan and this is a jianti and this is a this and this is a that, so that when the time came, you know, I could, I could, I could try to get off on the right foot. Um, that's still, I, I, I have a tongue zipan, I have three of them. I'm still trying to figure out how the heck this thing, you know, because they're, and I have guidebooks that are trying to, that I'm reading through, and they talk about the angle at which you want to put, place the paper with regard to the hash, and I'm trying to figure out, like, why do you need to do this? Um, I'm a, I'm, I want to dive in. I don't have all the tools I need yet in order to kind of try this out, and the same thing happened with typewriter. I 
ended up acquiring six typewriters, but all of them had not functioned because they hadn't been oiled in 30 years, etc. Until I finally got one that I, it was actually still in its original crate, and I had to assemble it. And actually, the the ball bearings were still greasy, um, and the light bulb was still like unused and everything. And then when I assembled that, it worked like a charm, and I could finally sort of sense, you know, if the if the somatic picture that I had been doing all this time was anywhere near, you know, near that plus lots of interviews and observation. Yeah. But that I haven't entered that phase of this, but I definitely want to, assuming I figure out what it is I'm doing. We can continue the conversation. I always get choked up at this part. <laughs> we can continue the conversation in the Rare Books Pool Suite where there is a reception in Professor Mullaney's honor, but not before we thank you for the outstanding talk. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.